Yay, it's working. Okay. Hi, I'm Rochella in North Carolina. I'm Nate in Colorado. And I'm James in London. And we are Friends in Formation, a podcast where three very different friends take your questions about life and faith with the goal of listening, learning, and helping one another go deeper with God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Please email us your question to friends at renovare.org. That's friends at R-E-N-O-V-A-R-E dot org. Well, we have had some fantastic emails of people, um, haven't we? Haven't it's been we? really awesome. And I hope we're off to a great um, start with these. So I'd like to begin with one from Mark. And he writes about Alice Willard, who's the author that has been influential to us here. And he says, Dallas comments on the gospel and how we are able to live within the kingdom in a safe place. Could you comment, he asks, on what Talus might have meant when he talked about safety within the kingdom? When the kingdom, this is interesting, especially when the kingdom is, as some people say, um, here but not yet, in the sense that it's here but it's not fully present. Now, Mark, that is a really good question, and it takes us back to what we discussed in the previous episode, which was about what is the kingdom. By bringing that up, I can now ask my two friends here to give us an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Now we know why you wanted to introduce this question, James. (laughs) Did you see what I did there? I did indeed. (laughs) I have to admit that this question reminds me of, I think it's four questions that Dallas used to love to pose. And if I'm not mistaken, his book, Knowing Christ Today, goes into some depth with these questions. The, The first question is, what is reality? And he says, everybody has to answer for themselves that question. And his answer is the reality of the kingdom. So, okay, so now we're right back to Mark's question. (laughs) But I think it's important to remember what Dallas used to teach us, which is that invisible things are real. So it is true that we are not yet living in the fullness of the kingdom. I think that was the term you used, Nate, which I love. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom is not yet fully real. It is fully real. It is the basis of all reality. We're just not quite yet living in the fullness of the kingdom. But it's important to remember that the bedrock of all reality is God's reign. The range of God's effective will is the bedrock of all reality. And so the truth remains, even if we aren't yet experiencing it in its fullness. God does reign. And so making ourselves, placing ourselves under God's reign means that there's something we can trust, even if we can't see it. And that makes a difference to me. 
I've struggled with this concept for a number of years about safe in God's universe, God's kingdom. It certainly doesn't mean that we're protected from suffering and it doesn't feel safe. Uh, I'm reminded a little of the 23rd Psalm, I shall not want. And that, that in that, this idea that I have everything I need, moving into a trust of that. What I've done a little with this idea of safe and secure in the kingdom is that everything that matters from an eternal perspective is intact. The love of God, our connection, the state of our soul, that regardless of what happens in the external, those really important issues, we're safe. So at least that's what what I have done with it um, through the years. But I'm really curious to hear, James, your thoughts on it. <laughs> I, I'm drawn to the passage of Scripture that I think Taulus himself um, spoke on with this regard. This is in Mark chapter 4. This is where Jesus and the disciples are in a storm. There's a storm going on. They're in the sea. And in verse 38, Jesus is asleep. So he's asleep on the job, as it were, and they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care? Which I think is a really profound prayer, actually. Jesus, don't you care? This great concern that he doesn't care. And so I'm interested in this passage because some people say, oh, well, they should have had faith because he'd said, let's go to the other side. So if he said, let's go to the other side, then that's what was going to happen. So why have any anxiety over it? I find that a little bit too easy an answer. The way I've understood it, that they would be safe even if the boat had gone down. I mean, the thing they were most anxious about was that the uh, ship was going to sink, as it were. But the understanding that Dallas was trying to um, help us get was that even if the boat had gone down mm-hmm. in the kingdom, they are safe. But that requires, from what I'm understanding that, is that we have to locate ourselves in the kingdom. And therefore... We are safe in that place. Now, we're not trying to make easy answers or superficial answers. I think there's something very profound there about Absolutely. am I locating myself in that place? Because if I am, if I place myself in the kingdom, the kingdom being wherever Jesus is Lord, then we can expect and rely on and have a confidence in the arms of Jesus to hold us there. And that goes back to the idea of invisible things being real. As 2 Corinthians 5 clearly says, we walk by faith, not by sight. But let's just admit it, we like things we can see. We like to be able to reach out and touch it and see it with our eyes, ascertain it with all our senses and then feel that we can rely on it. That's that's where we're comfortable. And we're talking about something that's not comfortable. And you're right, Nate, that feels not safe. So what we're really talking about is trying to get our feelings to catch up to the understanding of the truth that we have from the study of God and His Word. 
trying to get my feelings to catch up is hard. (laughs) It's easy to feel unsafe with so many things that happen. I like this concept, and I, I love that picture of Jesus asleep in the boat that is so relaxed that there was no need to fear. And I mean, there's something really beautiful about that. I don't know that I find this, as as much as I would ascribe to it, I don't know that I find it comforting when um, the world caves in. I was just reading this morning, this BBC broke this story about the, in China, the um, genocide and the essentially concentration camps, some of the horrors that were coming out of that. And I, so I'm just thinking of some of those people and how, how does this idea help them as they're facing torture and death? Does it? Is it just a nice platitude? Does it have teeth to it? Does it shape change? Or is it, is it just feelings that haven't caught up to reality? I don't know. Well, you're right. I mean, these are terribly difficult and profound issues. And I'm hoping, I'm sure we'll come back to this many, you know, over time. So I hope people don't think if we move on from this at this point, we're not going to come back to it because there's an awful lot more to say on this. I just want to be careful that in saying how difficult it is, I don't allow myself to opt out. That phrase, now and not yet, here but not yet, I hear that and I've heard that. What often then happens is we export the kingdom to the not yet bit. It's exported to the future, certainly after we've passed from this life, And we export it to, well, hasn't remarkable things been happening in China? Or hasn't remarkable things been happening in Africa? It's always exported someplace else. And what I'm trying to hold on to, and you guys are helping me with this, is to hold on to, but it can happen here, right here, where we are. And that tension... I just don't want to export it too far away, I suppose. So I need people like you to help me hold on to believing for it in my life where I sit with all the stuff that I have. And you're right, James. And I think one of the ways, one of the best ways of dealing with that tension is remembering that you were not intended to hold on to that tension by yourself. No one is ever going to feel safe in the kingdom all by himself or herself. When my faith runs dry or when I'm weak, I need your strength. I need to borrow some of your faith when I'm at my lowest. I need you to hold me up. I need you to help me work out the intricacies of this tension. And you're right, Nate, just to pretend that everything is hunky-dory doesn't work. So I hope what we're some of what we're dealing with here is exploring the actual bad stuff that does happen, but the bedrock faith that we have that we are safe in the kingdom. And what does that mean? We're going to do that together because we'll never be able to do it alone. Well, guys, I have a a question that I would like to, for us to look at. This one comes from William. I love 
the heart that he expresses in this question. Listen, he says, as a husband, a father of four young children, and the pastor of a church, I find it incredibly difficult to create a rhythm of spiritual practice. Every day is scheduled so differently, and carving a quiet moment of meditation, contemplation, solitude, or any other attentive discipline is all but impossible in this season of life. He goes on to say that Richard Foster has at various times said that parents of young children should just rest easy and not pressure themselves about this. But he then says, my kids are now three, five, seven, and nine, and I find them even busier than when they were infants. (laughs) So do we have suggestions? Boy, do I resonate with William's question then. As the the mother of three, I, I understand really intimately the frustration he's expressing, but I don't think it's limited to someone who is in the season of having four little kids. I I think it's a much broader question than that. I think we are just dealing with the fact that our lives are now often so busy that it can be hard to, to carve out time for these disciplines that we all know would create some real attention, right? Some way to commune with God. How do you do that when you're harried? So love to hear what you guys have to think about this. Maybe the first is the idea of the inerrancy of the date book, that when we put something in the schedule, we find a way to make it work. And so, um, I mean, I I think I might offer that as one suggestion for William, is you schedule things out and then build, you know, the rest of your days as possible around it. That may be just one practical. The second piece, I think having some grace and being realistic, three, five, seven, and nine, that's just going to be chaos. Uh, there's, there's really no other way around that. It, it's chaos that won't last, you know, uh, as a parent of a 20-year-old and a 15-year-old. One day I woke up and and I found myself kind of bored that uh, there wasn't the same kind of pressure as there was when they were younger. So in one sense, it's, you know, there's a season to it. But to have lots of grace, that there are things that you are capable of doing and there are things you're not. You know, if, if you were a monk, uh, single, you could live life quite differently. However, However, there is a unique opportunity in the midst of this that I would encourage William not to miss, and and that's to find God in the chaos, to find God in the ordinary. It's all there, and potentially there's this incredible gift to, you know, find the sacred in the midst of running around and fixing food and changing diapers or whatever, that, that it's available. The, the kingdom is there, you know? And and so it's, a, it, it's easy to say on this side of it, but to say, pay attention, notice. God's very well aware of the responsibilities you have and and is very happy to meet you in the midst of those. Right, and we have we have a great example of that, of, of someone who falls into the category you just mentioned, Nate, a monk, a 17th century Carmelite monk, Brother Lawrence, who was not as well educated as some of his brothers in the priory, and so he found himself assigned to washing the dishes. And there he discovered that he was able to commune with God as well in that drudgery as he was when receiving the Blessed Sacrament. Those are his words. 
And I think that's really important for someone who finds himself or herself in this kind of situation. First of all, I would remind William that while he may not have as much time as he would like for contemplative prayer or for meditation, he finds himself with ample opportunities for service, which is a really important discipline. So I would encourage him to apply himself with alacrity to that discipline of service. Is it humbling? Yes, it is, actually. But humility is one of the greatest attributes of Christ. It can be fulfilling in that, in the mundane, as you said, Nate, there are opportunities for communion. And like you, Nate, I would say, don't miss it. Don't rush through it. And see if God will meet you in the most mundane, because I have great faith that He will. And we have to just be careful that we don't have these kind of um, stereotype expectations of what mm-hmm. that involves, you know. And, and I think what you're both encouraging us to do is to let go of some kind of idealized view of a spiritual journey that is, you know, your highs all the time and hear the voice of Jesus at every turn for everything. And I think you're saying, you you will find him in the ordinary. I think the brother, Dorrance, is interesting because he actually had a physical disability as well. He found to walk was quite hard and they had to roll him around. So he was actually struggling on several fronts. And I find that the accepting opportunities when they come, so suddenly I find I'm without anybody around me just for a short time. I don't know why, but they're doing other things and they're not quite here or I'm out on the street or I'm just, and right, this is my chance. This is my one chance to reconnect or an appointment, uh, something in my schedule doesn't happen. And with children, often things you thought were going to happen don't happen. You suddenly have a moment. And I always take those as God giving me a, a gift. People, when they cancel on me and a appointment, a meeting, a call, they feel awful. They feel, you know, terrible that they've let me down. But I always see it as a thank you, Lord, moment, (laughs) you know, where I can just redeem the time a bit. I mean, that sounds awful, but that is what I do. I just accept it. You know, whether it's the holding a sleeping child or doing some laundry or, you know, all these things I take as more opportunities. The funny joke to me is the line, you probably heard this when someone prays, Oh Lord, I'm so glad that this day I have not committed any sin. My mind has not, you know, strayed from your ways this whole day. But now I'm going to get out of bed and start my day. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning, you know, it happens. It happens. But that does give me one other thought. And that is, and this has been hugely important to me, when I was holding down a busy career job and pressure, 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 which has a parallel here with children. I learned, this was something that Dallas Willard, I think, suggested, was try to train yourself to wake up in the morning praying. 
it's a habit. It's not a super spiritual thing. It's not like, you know, I'm a hero of the faith. But to learn to wake up, because um, your habits don't take that long. If you keep at them, it, it becomes harder to not. So that we we keep it up and we wake up with Jesus. I mean, that sounds incredibly high spiritual. It really isn't. It's just a, I wake up and I'm placing myself with Jesus. I'm just accepting his love. I'm, as you said, a, a verse from Psalm 23 or a line from the Lord's Prayer, that comes out and we just do that. And if I wake up in the night, I will try to turn my thoughts to him, not to the thing I'm worried about, not to the thing that's anxious, try to turn it over to him and say, well, I'd rather be asleep. I've got these children, I've got issues at work, but I'm just going to take it as a, I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk with Jesus at this point. And it's great, actually. You can have some wonderful times. And that moment between being asleep and being awake can often be the time when our our intellectual part of us quietens off and the intuitive part of us can come forward. So I'm just, you can see what I'm doing here. I'm looking for moments during my day when Absolutely, I can be because with him. that's great, James, because often moments are all you get in this stage. I would go a little further and say, let's name that discipline. Let's name the habit you just outlined there. And I'll call it first thought, last thought. So, William, upon your first waking moment in the morning, let that be the Lord's Prayer. And maybe your only chance to pray it is in the shower. But take that as your first thought and your last thought at night. Let that be Psalm 23 and try that for a month. That's a very simple way to incorporate what James was just talking about. But I want to remind William and every other parent of young children that rhythm is not one thing. I think you, James, mentioned expectations and having expectations of a particular kind of rhythm of life. Remember, rhythm can vary. Syncopation is a rhythm. You're not going to be real waltzing (laughs) at this stage of your life. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a rhythm of life with God. And God can bless you where you are. Maybe for this stage, maybe take up listening to some jazz and realize that that God is really great at improvisation (laughs) And he'd be happy to work with the rhythm that you can offer wherever you happen to be. That's good. A couple thoughts. One is I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to know that when I cancel meeting with you, James, that I'm giving, giving you a gift, so I will remember <laughs> that. It's a blessing, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said earlier to find God in the chaos or in the busyness, and I, I think I want to revise that. Let God find you in the chaos, in the busyness, mm-hmm. in whatever rhythm, because God's there and not deterred by, by all that. The other thing this, this brings to mind is that, I mean, there are external circumstances that, that, that we all face at different junctures in our life 
But there's also the circumstances we create. And many of us have this incredible propensity to fill up every moment and, and to kind of create the, these circumstances. So, I mean, that to me is an important piece to realize that it, it isn't always externals. We, we take ourselves into new seasons and there's often protective measures or adaptive measures that we are employing by manufacturing a very busy life. And it's worth examining it at some level. One last thing I would say to this particular questioner, to William, who does find himself in this busy, busy, busy time with little kids. This is something that I would remind the parents of little kids. I'm reminded of when Jesus is, is talking with his followers and he, um, he questions them about what it will be like when one day they're called to account for their actions. And the, the conversation is about whether they helped the sick or the poor, the needy, the prisoner. But Jesus says something really important. He says, in as much as you've done these things to the least of these, you've done it unto me. I would say it might be helpful to remember that little kids who so desperately need care are some of the least of these. And so maybe reframe your thoughts of this lowly service to your children as something that you do for Jesus. You've done it unto me, he says. He's there. That was good. I'm really enjoying what I'm hearing here about this. I love the kind of reality of bringing up children and homes and everything else. And just to build on your point, Nate, about letting God find us in this, it reminds me of a very important uh, line that Henry Nouwen says in The Return of a Prodigal Son, his book, he says this, in most of my life, I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, to pray always, to work for others, to read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed over and over again, but have always tried again, even when I was close to despair. I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, to love me. And the question is not, how am I to find God? But how am I to let myself be found by God? The question is not, how am I to know God? But how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking far away for us in the distance, trying to find me, and he longs to bring me home. And I wonder whether as we walk through our busy days, that's what we might want to be going after. Where has he shown up to me through my child, through that accident, through that conversation? And that can happen without any structure.
Well, I've got a question from Michael, and here it is. I'm a newspaper dabbler. For many years, I never read or even avoided the news, and now I read a little every day, spending ideally less than 15 minutes of my day. How would Jesus read, listen to news in our day and age? Or put differently, how should the gospel of the kingdom's availability affect how we inform ourselves about current events? That's a good question. (laughs) 15 Especially 15 lately. minutes a day. Right. I'm impressed. <laughs> well done. What's Michael. how much well it is right. or how little it is? I'm going to just let you guess what my yeah. intention was on that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I would say Mike's already on the right track there. Well, like we're restricting it to 15, <laughs> just 15 minutes. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I love yeah. this. Yeah. I think this is exactly right. And if you know that this area of how we engage in the world and culture and so on is really where I'm I'm really interested in. And I just have to say the obvious. Karl Barth, the German theologian, said to keep the Bible in one hand and the paper in the other and try to hold the two together. So we hold our iPhone and our feed that comes in of the breaking stories and everything else in one hand and scripture in the other and we try to broker try to listen to both listen to the word the scriptures and the world the news feeds that's what john stott the great british churchman used to say so we try to listen to the word and we listen to the world and how that conversation happens isn't always tidy And, of course, the news media are playing on our hearts as well as our heads. They know how to put an image, to put a headline, to tell a story that pulls us in, gets us interested. It's posed in such a way. The commentary I'm very keen on doing is to listen to, what's this stirring up in me? Because... I sometimes feel I'm being played with, with the news media. You know, that image, because images are as strong as, I mean, even you're stronger than the words. An image, it, it catches my eye. Now, what are you doing to me there? You're playing with me. I mean, you need me to be drawn into that story. You want me to read that story and you'll leave me hanging wishing it went on a bit longer or leading me on to the next story. So I'm trying to monitor not just the story and then what's happening out there, but happening what's happening inside me, what's happening inside. Well, and you, you touch on something there, James, that I think is really important, and especially to Mike's question of how would Jesus read the news. There's some information that Jesus has that we should have. And this one point applies especially to listeners in the U.S. And James, you would be able to tell us about other countries as well. But in the U.S., news used to be very different. And just a little bit of background. Enacted in 1949 was the Federal Communications Commission put into place something called the Fairness Doctrine that meant that anyone with a broadcast license had to be relatively fair in the way they presented the news. 
It doesn't mean it always happened, but it, it was something that would could at least be quasi-enforced. But that doctrine was done away with, with the rise of cable news. In 1987, with deregulation, that fairness doctrine went by the wayside. And what we had to rise up was what could maybe be called infotainment. And a lot of what is now couched as news is actually designed to do what you just talked about, James. It's designed to draw you in. It's designed to play on your emotions rather than just presenting fact. And it doesn't have to, by any stretch of the imagination, it doesn't have to be fair. It can be pure entertainment, or it can be designed just to entrap you into kind of an endless loop. And so what we're dealing with now, unfortunately, a lot of times is some very real media bias. You're not necessarily being exposed to both sides. And Jesus would know that all of that is going on in the background, right? We have to inform ourselves of that and to try to bear that in mind, that that maybe we are being played a little bit. And I'm not saying that we're being played by one side of a spectrum or the other. In fact, um, bias doesn't necessarily mean that the information is not factual. It just means that certain parts of the information are presented in different ways. So I think we do have to take a particular attention to how we interact with the news and to realize there's a lot going on behind the scenes that's meant to draw us in and really can entrap us if we're not careful. I think that's really helpful to just keep in mind that there is a multi-trillion dollar industry whose whose will is to manipulate and if they can glue me to the print or the television is they'll take all they'll take anything i give them and it is quite easy to get sucked in this is a good question for me as someone who reads news voraciously and have found myself through the years taking fast where i just you know this week, this month, I'm out. And if something's really important, then I have it set up with my wife where she'll let me know. And, oh, I can't tell you how helpful that is. It's it's one of those things where, like so many things, you don't realize what it's doing or its impact until you let it go, good or bad. And I found that so freeing just to periodically say, it's okay. The world will go on just fine without my engagement or, you know, passive engagement. However, one of the things I've learned is that that's an easy answer. And checking out is much easier than trying to find some sort of healthy moderation, as with as with a lot of things. In one sense, I'd love to hear from Michael because the fact that he's maintaining less than fifteen minutes a day, I I think, is quite impressive and says he's quite far along in, in this. For me, what I found helpful from the fasting is as I go back, putting it in its proper place. These are not eternal things for the most part. In the grand scope of eternity, these situations, however important, and they are important because they affect people's lives and sometimes quite dramatically, it's probably not something we're going to be talking about in 10,000 years. It, it, it has a temporalness to it. And so for me to kind of step back just a little bit and realize that and then do some questions of examine and why am I being 
drawn to this? Is it to inform me to stay, you know, to be a good citizen? Is it so I can pray? Or is it because I want to stare at a car wreck? Because I, I want to look for others' downfall or to reinforce how right I am? I mean, th- this brings up some really destructive, dark places in me. So to periodically try and reorient myself and, and be really honest about why I'm reading this and consuming, consuming that. Yeah, no, that's really good. So there's something there about uh, listening to what is going on inside me. There's something about listening to what God might be saying through this story or showing me about myself. And then there's a third, which is the conversation going out in the world. I mean, the culture is having a conversation constantly about truth, meaning, life, love, integrity, and all the questions that Dallas Willard asks us about who's a good person, who's got it made, what is reality, and almost any story you can apply those to. Those are the questions that you know, Jesus was asking. Who's a good person? Who's got it together? Who is a success? What is success? What is the real world? What, is the, what are the absolutes we should be going after? What's important in life? All those kind of issues he was concerned about. And I'm so intrigued that in Jesus's day, they had stories going around. If you look it up, you know, Jesus you know, heard about John or it was reported to him or the person went into the local town and told people. Well, that's a, a story, a news story. So he lived in an environment where stories were going around. He wasn't sure they were always accurate. They weren't always accurate, actually, even in his day. So I think this threefold thing of what's it saying about me, what's it saying from God, and what's it saying about the cultural conversation that is going on. And just just one last thing, I do love the G.K. Chesterton approach to this. He says, I say grace before I go to the concert. He loved this idea of saying grace, not just before eating. He says, I say grace before going to a concert, before seeing a play, before I open a book, before I do any sketching, before I swim or walk or dance, before I play. I mean, that's a lovely image of what the G.K. Chesterton world was. Before I dip my pen in the ink, he's obviously in an era where that's what you did, but he's trying to say grace before all of those. So we might say, before I turn on to watch the you know channel or before I open a paper. And I just love that integration point. Oh, Lord, what do you want me to spot here? What do you want me to hear? So those are some possible ways of understanding this. I like that, James. And if I'm listening to you talking about this Chesterton approach and listening to you, Nate, I think you're quite right in your point that it's easier to go, in some ways, to go cold turkey and to fast from any news media than it is to take news media in moderation. But I wonder if there could be a meeting in the middle between these two points and for us to say grace 
before we partake of news. And to have the partaking of news be a particular event that we do for a particular prescribed amount of time. So maybe we choose one medium and let that be it, whatever it would be. Maybe we look at the media bias chart, like All Sides Now puts out a good media bias chart. And there are a few sources that are in the center of that, so not so biased, one or the other. And we say, okay, for 15 minutes, I'm going to catch up on today's news. But we say grace before that. We ask for God to be working in our hearts, even as we read the news. And we read it from a trusted source for that specific amount of time. And then we end it by entrusting it to God, both the events of the world, the people involved, and our heart's response. And then we cut it off for the day. That's an act of trust that would be pretty radical in today's world. I'm reminded of the first question we talked about is, is there actual safety in the kingdom? Well, there is, but again, we're waiting for our feelings to catch up, right? And so often, I think we can consume more and more and more news looking for a feeling of safety. We want to know how it came out. We want to know that the good guys won. We want to know that the bad guys were held at bay. And it's hard to get your feelings to catch up in today's news, (laughs) Don't you think? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think both of you guys have brought up really good things that that we could take on as a discipline. The saying of grace before partaking and the limiting to a certain amount of time. I think those are those are probably both ways that Jesus would approach the news media today. I think you're so right. And let's pray for people who are in that industry. I mean, my right. wife is a career journalist and has had to work in that industry. And let's not see it as a sort of unspiritual world. There are moral choices being made constantly. So pray for some of these journalists. That's exactly right. You know, I'm reminded of a proverb that I think of often because I need it so much. I think it's Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. That's really the approach that I have to take with news media. I have to guard my heart from some pretty ugly things, from being judgmental, from being untrusting, from being all kinds of things that are not Christ-like. So I'm really glad that Mike asked this question. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Renovare's Friends in Formation. Please go over to renovare.org to find other helpful resources and the regular podcast. And we'd love to have your questions. Please keep them coming. Send them to friends at renovare.org. That's friends at R-E-N-O-V-A-R-E org.